Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for tuning in this morning to GCC's live stream. If this is your first time joining us as a guest, we just want to let you know that we're honored to have you join us today and have you join in as our guest. And so our church's mission is to make Jesus the hero. That's what our mission statement has been. That's what it will continue to be. And that's what our aim and goal is. And all that we do is to make Jesus the hero. And so we want to do that on Sunday mornings for the preaching and teaching of God's word. But we also want to do that in all of life. Uh, wherever we go, whatever our hobbies are, we believe that our aim and goal as Christians is to lift up and exalt Jesus and, and allow him to draw and call people to himself. And so <clears throat> that's our church's mission. Like I said, if you're new and joining in, listening for the first time this morning, wherever you're at, Christian, non-Christian, we just want you to know we're honored to have you tuning in with us this morning. And so uh, a few things before we uh, jump right in is that uh, first, I want to recognize and thank Laura Phillips for the artwork uh, for the new series that we're starting today and, and for taking the time to do that for us and for our church. Also, just want to let you guys know just a quick update on uh, where we're at with COVID and, and uh, the church coming back together and that sort of stuff. Is, is I would say right now, I know some of you are gathering together and watch parties, and I think that's awesome. I think that's a, 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 something great that we can do right now in this time and in this period before we go back to meeting. Is we've had one meeting with the DAC. I left out of town, now I'm back, and so I need to have another follow-up meeting with the DAC, but the hope is to move back in that direction um, in the near future since uh, we're able to meet in larger groups right now. And so just as a heads up, that's what we're uh, moving and working toward, trying to be respectful to the DAC um, and, and their space as we partner with them uh, and meet there on Sunday mornings. And so that's that. Also, <clears throat> as, as far as giving goes, I've been encouraged by people's giving and generosity to our church. I would encourage you, ex especially in light of the season that we're in, if you are able to give, to please continue to give to us as we want to see uh, the gospel grow and expand here in Lane County and then um, wherever else you're listening. If you're involved in a local church there, we always uh, encourage you to support your local church. If you do want to give to our church and you call our church our home, then there's three ways you can do that. The first way is through the Church Center app. And there's some easy steps there, especially if you're a cash giver, that makes it easy for you just to, uh, through a few clicks, just give. You can find our church, the information, and give that way. You can also give online, gccugene.org. There's a Give tab. Click on the Give tab, and it can walk you to the steps from there. And last, if you still write checks, then you can make, che make checks payable, GCC. And our post office box is 41864, um, and that's Eugene, Oregon, 97404. With that... <coughs> I would encourage you guys right now, if you have a Bible um, or, or a Bible app, please turn this morning um, because I want us to look at the Word of God. I want you guys to see where, where we're at in the Word of God. I want you to read along as um, I preach from the Word of God this morning. And specifically, this morning, we're going to be starting in 2 Samuel 21. So <clears throat> if you're new to your Bible, uh, it's, it's in the Old Testament, and so it's right after 1 Samuel. And so 2 Samuel 21, we're going to be in verses 1 through 14. Here's what I'm going to say. We're starting a new series today titled Race, Culture, and Reconciliation. I know that this is a sensitive subject. I know this is a passionate subject, and I know that there is a lot of uh, division and even disunity around this. We know that our culture and, and our nation is... is is, is at all different places with so many different emotions right now. And so I want to recognize that and acknowledge that. We also posted our network's uh, Acts 29 statement 
um, uh, in the video beforehand. So if you did not get that, you can go uh, back later and read that as well. Um, we believe Acts 29 did a good job representing what we um, believe and where our convictions lie. But I know that since we have such a sensitive subject at hand, I talked to a non-Christian the day before yesterday, and, and they said, boy, you're tackling that subject, huh? Like, you're not going to win from other side on that. So I know this, but I'm hoping this, that we could, as Christians, for those that call themselves Christians, engage in such a subject as this with a ton of grace and a ton of humility as we dive into this, as we work through this, as we walk this, understanding full well that we are going to disagree with people, that you will disagree with me and I will disagree with you. And, and, and that this week I've had disagreements with family members, have disagreed with people from inside of our church, that we will disagree. But I hope that we can stand united on and in the gospel. And, and people are asking, what are you going to do or how will you approach this? We're going to show, as we've committed to do from the beginning, that the gospel speaks to every matter in life, that the gospel is the lens in which we must look through and must be, in, in which we must work through but it has to be the center of our preaching and of our teaching and all of our lives. We have to see the implications of the gospel and how it speaks to these issues. And so that's what we're going to do. I'll say this before we jump in, too. That there's a ton of opinions right now. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone thinks that they know what's right and, 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 and that we all know the best way to handle this. What I'm going to do and what I hope to do through this series is, is, is represent the word of God faithfully because we have to remember as Protestants in Sola Scriptura that scripture alone is our authority. And so instead of a ton of opinions and more opinions, what I wanna do is, is look to the text, look to the word of God to speak to what is going on in our culture right now. I hope to uh, approach this from a gospel-centered perspective and throughout the next few weeks, this is what we're gonna be covering today the main point. Recognition leads to reconciliation. Next week, we're going to look at ancient race and ancient grace. Then we're going to hear uh, from the voice of others, and then we're going to look at social justice as a whole on week four. And so that's where we're headed. Pray. Pray for me now, even as I pray. Pray for us. Pray for our hearts to be open, our ears to be open, to hear and to receive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've spoken. You, you, you have not left us without a voice, without truth. You have spoken, you've given us your truth. The word is truth. Father, these are your words, inspired through men, given to us. Let them be the words that shape and guide our lives. Let us approach this, Father, through your spirit, with a spirit of humility, with a spirit of correction, with a spirit of willingness to see where we are wrong, where we are in, uh, um, uh, in opposition to the gospel, where we are not living consistently and faithful to your word. Let your word cut us, let it correct us, but let the gospel of love and in the power of the gospel, what Christ has done in our exalted king, heal us and reconcile us. Let us be slow to speak. Let us be quick to listen. Let us be slow to cast judgment. Let us be quick to offer grace. Let mercy and humility and grace flow from our lives. Let us engage this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna read through... 2 Samuel 21 right now. You can read along with me. Um, I, I'm not going to read all of this. I, I, I will uh, um, jump parts of this, um, but I'm not going to also read through it all right now. 
Uh, I, I don't want to tell the whole story. This is, this is a narrative account, um, but I want to leave you guys going, what's next? How does David respond? What's happening? What goes on here? And, and so um, at first, I'm just going to read 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 6 right now. So this is the word of the Lord. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So here's what we have. First, what I'm going to do is give you a ton of reasons to discredit me as a preacher and as a pastor. I want to give you a ton of reasons not to, to listen to this, but then I want to appeal to a couple reasons of which you might. It, it is first, I would say, I, was born, or I, was, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Texas. I'm a white mil, uh, millennial, so I know I have that going against me as we enter into this subject. Um, I grew up uh, after Texas in Roseburg, which still love Roseburg and the people of Roseburg. My, ham, my, my, my family heritage, which I've shared before, my dad was racist. And I only heard him refer to people of color in derogatory terms. Not just minorities, people of color, but also white people who had long hair, who had earrings, who had facial hair, who had tattoos. I only heard them referred to in derogatory terms. I am a conservative, to discredit me even more. I'm a Calvinist, a five-pointer. I'm a complementarian. I believe in a young earth. I'm not going to defend that here. I was told when I went through an elder process years ago that I was emotionally immature, then later was told by women in our church that I didn't know how to women or pastor women. I am a hunter. Uh, we sleep trained our baby, which is not popular. We are pro-vaccines. I know that is really not popular. And I want to say that I am not an expert on racial reconciliation. I have no PhDs that I can appeal to. I, if you want to discredit me on other areas, I grew up listening to rap and country, Biggie, Tupac, George Strait, and Garth Brooks, I would say, counseled me through dark seasons of my life, and I also am a pastor who struggles with anxiety and depression. I would say there are countless reasons, people, why you could say I'm not going to listen to him on the subject matter. But what I would appeal to, I'm not going to tell you that I'm not a racist. I'm not going to tell you that I have black friends, or names, or anything like that. What I'm going to appeal to is that I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And I hope to represent God's word faithfully this morning and let it be the authority and not my own opinions and not my own emotions. I carry plenty of them just like you do. 
but my heart and my hope is to faithfully represent God's word. And I would ask you, if you call GCC your home and family, to please allow me and extend the trust to pastor you guys on such a sensitive subject as this. Now, verse one, David says, or 2 Samuel says, and Samuel records for us, that there was a famine in the land in the days of, uh, of David that went on for three years. So year after year, there's this famine that's taking place. And this is not like a shelter and home that we have here where you can still get food. Like they survived off the crops and land. And so there's this, there's this intense famine going on. And then so three years later, for whatever reason, for whatever unknown reason, David turns his face to the Lord, which means that he sought the Lord's presence. It means that in that moment, he decided that I'm going to turn to the Lord. That is crazy that three years, the king of Israel, for whatever reason, that's how long it seems to have taken him to turn his face to the Lord, to seek the presence of the Lord and ask what's going on. Why? Maybe because he is, uh, um, depends like many of us do on ingenuity. Maybe he's a guy who turns to his own tactics and his strategy. Maybe he was thinking and planning with all the other people on all, all that could be done. What he did not do was turn to the most important person, period, and that's the Lord to seek his face. And I think many of us, if we can be honest, should, should, should at least recognize as we're going to look at recognition leads to reconciliation that sometimes we're just slow to move. Sometimes we, we, we are so immersed in, in, in our culture biases that we can't even open our eyes or have a willingness to see the hardness of our heart. So for some of us, we need to recognize that right now we've turned to every other thing besides turning our face to the presence of the Lord and even seeking him and what we should do, and how we should respond. And so I think, first, we need to recognize these things. We also need to recognize up front that, like David, it might have taken him such a long time to do such a good thing, like turn to the Lord, because like David, and like all of us, everyone listening, we are all sinners. Jeremiah 17, 9 talks about all of our hearts. We corporately share this, saints, that all of us are desperately sick. That's how Jeremiah describes our hearts, that that. that all broken, that we're all sick, that we're all sinners. There's no one who does good, no, not one, as it says in Romans 3. The Psalms tell us that. We need to recognize that, that as we enter into this, that maybe for some of us, it takes us a long time to recognize, but we also need to see the Lord response to David. He doesn't go after him. He doesn't belittle him. He's not, not like, what took you three years to turn your face to me? But the Lord responds, and look how he responds. He says, still in verse one, there's blood guilt on the house of Saul. There's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Okay, <laughs> this is, this is going to be hard for us to understand in a lot of ways because we see, we, we think through an individual lens. And that's because that's the culture that we've grown up in as Westerners, for the most part. I, I, I don't want to put that on everyone, but for the most part, we've grown up as Westerners. And so like Keller uh, would say is that we have a hard time understanding corporate matters or seeing things as corporate matters. So just because some of this might be weird to us doesn't mean that it's weird to other cultures throughout the world. When they wake up in the morning, they think about how their jobs impact their family. When they um, do things, they think of how their sins impact the whole family and the whole culture. And now David, is, is, is something is brought to him from Samuel, or, or I'm sorry, from the Lord. And what's brought to him is, look, David, you've been king for years now. Saul's been dead for years now, but there's still blood guilt on the house of Saul from something that Saul did years ago. Look at this. David does not respond with, this is, this is bogus. This, this, this is unreal. This is unfair. I didn't do this. I played no part in this. This isn't on me. This is something Saul did. This is Saul's stupidity 
This is his own oppression. This is his own issues. This is something that Saul did years ago. How does this have anything to do with me? That is not how David responds. And the reality is, David recognizes that the king that was before him still represented his spiritual lineage. And so he bore the responsibility of that. He didn't say, again, I think this is completely bogus that you're trying to put something on me that was done by Saul years ago. How does this have any bearing and any impact on my life? He does not respond like that. He recognizes he recognizes that, 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 that the sin of those before him is still something that he's going to take ownership for. He, he recognizes that there's still implications of what's happened before him, even though it was years before his kingship. We see Achan in Joshua 7. He is punished for, uh, for his sins, not just himself, but his entire family and all of his livestock is stoned and then burned to death for his sins. It was a corporate matter. We see in Daniel 9 that when he repents it, he doesn't just pray for himself. He actually, or the people of his time, he actually repents for the people that went before him. He prays for his kings and princes and, and forefathers before. You can look at Daniel 9 and see that. And many times when we think about repentance and about recognition, we think of the things that we did and only that we did and not things that have been done before us and aren't even willing to recognize that. David was. He was at least willing to recognize it. He was willing to recognize that the Lord told him there was blood guilt from someone before him. What does David do? Look at what David does in verse two. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the uh, remnant of the Amorites. So I think it's important for us to know who the Gibeonites are. The Gibeonites, if you go back to Joshua 9, um, I, think, I think their story is fascinating. So as, 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 as Joshua goes in to conquer the land of Canaan, and the nation of Israel is conquering Canaan, they're wiping out the inhabitants. And so they just get done beating some, uh, uh, some, some big names in the area. And the Gibeonites get word of it, and they're like, whoa, this God is with this people. We do not want to stand against them. We need to figure out a way to join them. So what they do is they actually trick the nation of Israel. And what they do is they, uh, they, they only live a few miles from where, where, where Israel is at. But they put on these old rugged clothes. They make their shoes look beat up. Uh, they, uh, they get bread that, that, that looks really old. They, they get wine skins that are really old. And then they go to the nation of Israel. And then they tell them, we've been traveling such a long time, such a long time because we've heard of the wondrous things that the Lord has done. And so now we want to come in and, and, and make a covenant with you and be a part of you. And Israel goes, Joshua responds, he's like, wait, how do we know you didn't just come from around the block or from around the corner? And they said, because look, our clothes are worn out. When we started our journey, they were fresh. The, the bread is gone, the wine is gone. So they tricked them. The Gibeonites flat out tricked the, the people of Israel. So that's the story, okay? But what happened was Israel made a covenant with them. Though they tricked them and they found out that they tricked them, they, they made a covenant to never destroy those people. And God takes his covenants seriously, very seriously. And so they made this covenant with them. But what we find out is that in this story is that Saul breaks the covenant and starts to destroy them because he has a zeal for Judah and for Israel. And he believes that the Gibeon are standing against that or they're doing some harm to that. So in his zeal and in his passion, he destroys them, breaking the covenant that they made between them and God. And so God takes this serious. But what David does is brilliant. I think it's, it's how recognition leads to reconciliation is David just calls them. 
David calls up the Gibeonites and he brings them in before him and he speaks with them. As a good king, he talks to them. He even starts to ask them questions. What David does is he listens, is he listens to the Gibeonite people. And I would say recognition leads to reconciliation because David was willing to recognize that what Saul did to his people violated the covenant and it was wrong. Though David didn't do it, he knew that the king before him did it and he represented the nation of Israel. And so he just listened. And here's what I would say, church, family, this morning, is right now, there, are, there, there is a lot going on in our culture. There's a lot going on in our society. And African Americans are hurting. They are grieving. They're angry. They're frustrated. And so are minorities. And I would say before we come in guns blazing to, 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 to anyone, have we called people? Have we done what David gives us as an example of doing and just listened to people and recognized with them that they're hurting? That is one of the most uh, just, just, I think, priestly things we can do. We have a sympathetic high priest who just listens to people, who, who, who sympathizes with people. And, and we are called to be a royal priesthood, as it says in 1 Peter. So one of the most loving things we can do is just engage people where they're at, recognize where they're at, recognize hurt that they are feeling, and just empathize and sympathize with people. That's where David even started, just to recognize we must be willing to recognize these things. We must be willing to recognize that in our own heritage of Christianity, there has been atrocity and evil done. In Oregon, there was a lash law. For those of you guys that aren't familiar with this, minorities would be lashed if they lived in Oregon, and that would be repeated 20 up to 39 lashes every six months until they got out. That's the reality. Another reality is that the, 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 the clan used to meet at Henson Baptist Church and First Baptist up in Portland. They hosted clan meetings. That's the reality. That's not me knocking them. That actually came to me from their church leadership. These are realities. And sometimes what people want to, 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 for us to do is just to recognize and hear that they are hurt and there's been hurt done. And I think that sort of recognition is a good step toward moving in reconciliation. Just to meet with people. But, but, but to say you have no reason to hurt or look at America now, it's the greatest nation on earth or all lives matter and all these things, I don't think it's helpful when people are going through pain and when they're hurting to throw out all those sorts of statements. I think it's helpful for us and biblical for us to hear and listen and engage and call people and grieve with people and start there. I hope he doesn't mind because he's sitting on the other side of the camera right now, but I've never, I've never lived one day as an Asian American. But I know even for Nathan, at the beginning of COVID, it was different for him as he stepped into a grocery store because he didn't know if people hated him as though he's the one who brought COVID over here or, or how people were looking at him. I've never had to experience that. I've only experienced once what it would be like to be a, a minority even in a church because I went to church with my roommate in an all-black church because he invited me and I was, didn't want him to leave my side. I, I can acknowledge and recognize that I don't know how a lot of these things feel. And I can do my best to try to empathize and sympathize with you and meet you where you're at, but just at least recognize that if you're hurting, why can't we listen to people's stories? 
Why can't we understand why they're hurting? Why, why do we need to instantly fire back? Let me ask this. What are we holding on to that we're afraid of losing just for the sake of being right? We don't see David doing that. And you know what we don't see David doing? We can learn a lot from there is we don't uh, see David doing this. Well, guess what, Gibeonites? You wouldn't even be here right now if it wasn't for you guys doing wrong in the first place. You guys tricked us. He doesn't do that. He doesn't see this as a time to bring back up the history and go over this. And right now I see even a lot of this with the George Floyd stuff with people trying to find out all that was wrong with him. And, and I think sometimes we do all this stuff because we're so committed to being right and, and, and to proving that we're right, that we have to find something and find something wrong to make sure that everyone understands that we're right. The way that we approach politics, the way that we approach all these situations is that we are right. But what is wrong with just sitting down, calling, listening to people and grieving with them and understanding them and recognizing that people are hurting, that they're angry. I think it's a godly thing to do. We see the king doing that. We also need to recognize with that that there's also law enforcement officials right now in our country that are hurting because they have fought for the integrity and, and, and for the law enforcement officials in their neighborhoods. And so we might not understand what it's like to be a law enforcement official, but we can at least recognize that some of them are frustrated and angry and hurting because they have fought for integrity and one unjust cop murders a man and now they're all held responsible. We need to be careful to recognize that we don't lump people together in just one massive group but we are slow to speak, as James says, and I believe we have a verse for, that we are slow to speak, that we are quick to listen. Sadly, I've seen so many people that aren't listening to this. We are quick to speak. We are slow to listen, but James says that. What does he say exactly? He says this, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What about this one? Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding. Do we recognize that we don't want to understand, but only in expressing his opinions, that many of us just want to express opinions, taking no time to listen, taking no time to recognize? What about Proverbs 18.13? If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. We also need to recognize there's hurt and done being in the name of demanding things from people and how they should respond. We need to recognize that is also unhelpful. As Ephesians 4 talks about, that every word that flows from our mouth should give grace to those who hear. We need to recognize, people, that we are all broken, that people are hurting, and we need to recognize the minority group is hurting right now. We need to recognize that Law enforcement is hurting. We need to recognize these things and we need to learn to just ask questions and meet people where they're at. Listen to them, engage them. And notice what David asked here. David said to the Gibeonites in verse three, what shall I do for you? The same exact question that Jesus asked when he shows up on the scene as John, what do you want me to do for you? Is the same question that he asked blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? David, as a king, is like, what do you want me to do for you? And, and notice his next question. It says, how, how can I make atonement? David recognizes that atonement needs to be made, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. Look, Saul had a zeal, 
a misplaced zeal, a, a nationalistic zeal for Judah and for Israel. David's zeal is for the Lord. I hope that your zeal is greater for the Lord than it is for any sort of nationalistic pride or that it is for any sort of social justice. I hope that your passion, like David, is for the Lord, to see him lifted up, to see him exalted, and to see people reconciled together under him. But he asks this. He goes, how can I make atonement? How, how, what do I need to do? The Gibeonites respond. This is beautiful. Verse four. They said to him, these people have been with the nation of Israel for some time now, and they know the word of God. They know the Torah. They know the law. Notice they don't respond emotionally. They respond back with the authority of God's word. They take David to David's word that he stands on and says this, oh, no, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. So they're saying, look, look, this is not even on Israel. This is a Saul issue. And he said, what do you say then I do for you? That's what David asked. And they said to the king, look, 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 the man who consumed us, Saul, and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord and give of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Okay. <clears throat> what, do, what do the Gibeonites do? Also, guys, sorry if I'm a little long-winded today. I'm trying to unpack all of this. Is... The Gibeonites take David, who's, who, who, who's, who is set up as a king under God placing him there, who represents God. They take him not to their authority as their, um, I'm sorry, they take them not to their emotion as their authority. They actually take him to numbers. They take him to numbers 35. This is brilliant. And this is what's helpful, even as we engage in all this stuff. The Gibeonites Take him to Numbers 33 and 34, which is this. You shall not pollute the land, okay? Pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. This is God's law. This is God's just justice system. Verse 34. So you shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which I dwell, for I am the Lord for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of people of Israel. So that's what they took them to. They're like, hey, we know the word of God. This is what needs to happen. Justice needs to happen. And justice isn't a matter of silver or gold. We're not asking for that. We're not looking for that. Justice, according to God's justice system, means that the wages of what this man uh, has done is death. It is atonement. It is bloodshed. And so David asked us a question for the, for the word atonement. What can I do to appease, to propitiate, to expiate the sins of Saul? And he takes them to this. He takes, they take him to this. They take him to, no, 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 not silver, not gold. We know what the word of God says. The word of God says justice must be served and justice has to come by bloodshed, by appeasement through the shedding of blood. And that is how atonement happens. And so David is called to recognize what the word of God says. And there is no reconciliation and there is no justice until bloodshed happens by the ones who shed the blood. So what does David do? Look how he responds at the end of verse six. He says, I will give them. That's how he responds. David says, you're right. So David gives seven, seven sons over from uh, the house of Saul. You can read about that uh, in your own time in the next few verses. We're going to jump down to verse 9 because it says this. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them on a mountain before the Lord. And seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first day of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so the king understands justice must be served and justice comes through atonement. It comes through bloodshed because the wages of sin, as we would say, is death. We know that the wages of sin is death. But here's the reality is right now in our nation, people are crying out for justice. Amen. 
And I think that's good. People are crying out for justice because we are all created in the image of a just God. We're all image bearers. Every single one of us uh, has, has a yearning and desire for justice. I hope if you're a Christian, you can see that your cry for justice is because you're an image bearer of God. I hope that if you're a non-Christian, maybe you can start to see that the reason that you are crying out for justice is because you were created in the image of a of a God who is just. And what we want is we want a just God who is perfect in justice because you can't be good if you are not also just. And we wanna see a God execute judgment on behalf of his people. And we wanna see good kings do that. And so here we have an example of a king executing good, just judgment because this is what God has commanded. But what we need to understand right now is that we can be united as a nation on the cry for justice, but we're divided on us. Who needs, who needs to pay the price? Because we forget that at the center and of the core of Christianity is different from what's at the center and the core of culture. Right now, at the center of culture, what we hear about is George Floyd being murdered, and that's absolutely true. George Floyd was murdered unjustly, and justice needs to be served. We see it from the text that justice needs to come. But let's not forget this, please, and let us be focused here for this moment. That at the center and of the core of Christianity is another man suffocating. Literally, crucifixion, you died from asphyxiation. So, so you, you, you hung on the cross, grasping your breath, trying with, with, with every last breath that you can to breathe. At the center and of the core of Christianity is a symbol and is a cross. At the center of Christianity is literally a man hanging on a cross, dying, suffocating, and with his final breath, asking and pleading for God to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. I believe at the center of Christianity is a sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like to die unjustly because the ultimate man who died unjustly was the only innocent and perfect man, Jesus Christ. But as he died and as he cried out, he cried out for who? Not for righteous people, he cried out for his enemies. Those of us, all of us, alienated from God, hostile in mind, dead in our trespasses, at the center of Christianity is justice in its fullness. We should have been on the cross, though he took the place for us. We deserve the sort of treatment that he got, though he took our place there. At the, at, at the center and of the core of Christianity is one man reconciling all people to himself through his life and through his bloodshed. Justice was served by God once and ultimately by his wrath being poured out, by being appeased by the blood shed of Jesus Christ. If you want to cry for justice, please recognize that God provides ultimate justice in the cross where he is satisfied with the justice that Christ provided, that he is satisfied with the bloodshed that was poured out, and that through faith in him, we are reconciled to God, and then we are reconciled to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that, yes, we can honor George Floyd, and yes, we can lift up what he did, but I pray that as Christians, the ultimate name and the ultimate person that we are lifting up right now in our lives and in our daily lives is Jesus Christ and what he's done and what he's paid so that we can recognize that there is no end to racism, that there is no end 
to division, that there is no reconciliation without the gospel. Without the gospel, it will not happen. I saw the gospel turn my heart, a wicked racist sinner's heart, into a heart that loves people. I know that it can happen, and I know that nothing else will produce that other than the gospel. And we need to recognize that's where reconciliation comes from. We need to recognize that racism at its core, it's murder. Because if you hate someone, you've committed murder. And then we need to realize that all of us, including David here, are guilty of murder. He quite literally just had one of his friends murdered. We are all guilty of murder. I hope, I hope that we can recognize that, that we can see our biases, that we can see our prejudice, that we can see um, our, our, our own hatred, our own racism, all those things that are in our heart. And what I hope and pray so much, please hear me here, is that we wouldn't just desire the cross and the justice that we deserved to be met by Christ, but then desire that someone else have to pay for their own themselves. I pray like, like Christ calls us that we would be people that pray for our enemies because we understand that we deserve to be there on the cross that day. I pray that we could pray for our minorities that are hurting and grieving right now. I pray that, that, that we could pray for our uh, liberal and conservative Christian brothers and sisters. I pray that you could literally pray for the officer that murdered George Floyd and pray that somehow, by some way, that the grace of God would save him because if not, justice will be served for him and it will be him having to serve his own justice before a just and holy God. But for us, we deserve to do that. And I pray that we would desire the same grace be given to us and the same mercy because that's what Jesus is doing on the cross, praying for his enemies, praying and pleading with God to forgive them and saying it is finished. I pray we could pray for the white supremacist. I pray we could pray for people that is so hard for us to even think and fathom about praying right now because the grace of God is so infecting every area of our heart and lives that we understand the, the immense just infinitive nature of God, but also his love for us, that it leads us to pray for people that we have harbored and harvested bitterness and anger and frustration for. Recognition leads to reconciliation, and I hope that we can recognize that there is no reconciliation without the gospel, without us being willing to pray for people, not just people we like and love, but to pray for our enemies. Let me wrap up here, and there's no way I can do a good job with this, with the amount of time that we have left. But at the end of this, what, what, what happens is, is, is you have uh, these men hung on a mountain, right, for, their, uh, for the injustice of Saul. Again, there's another man hung on the mountain, which is Jesus, for the injustice that we have done against God. But then you have something interesting in the story. You have this lady named Rizpah who just had two of her sons put to death. And she's grieving. Were her sons uh, unjustly killed? No. Were her sons guilty? Yes. According to God's law, everything was done. But she's still a mother who's grieving. She's still a mother who's hurting. And so she stands out and grieves for, long, for a long period of time. And if you jump down to verse uh, 13, what you see is David doing this. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of the sons of Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hung. She wanted her sons to have a proper burial. Do they deserve that? No way. Do we deserve anything good? Not at all. But notice that at the end of this section, at the very last sentence of all this, it says, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So after blood was poured out, after justice and atonement was made, God started to restore the land. 
and I, and, and I hope what we can see in all of this is that David was a decent king. We could say in, in light of this passage, he was a good king, but David still turned over other people's lives and said, here's justice. You need to pay for this with your lives. The greater king came, Jesus, and he didn't demand other people's lives. He didn't demand anything from anyone. He didn't say, this is how justice is going to be served by you guys paying for it. He said, I will pay for it. I will pay for justice. I will make just, uh, 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 I, I will satisfy God's just righteousness and I will make atonement through my bloodshed. I hope the application that we can take from this is that we are people who are quick to recognize that only recognition will lead to reconciliation, to recognize our own biases, to recognize where we've caused hurt, to recognize the minority group is hurting, to recognize that the only rec uh, reconciliation comes through way of the gospel and through the cross. I pray and hope for our church and for our city that we can be a multi-ethnic, multi-diverse church. I pray that God would bring people with more passion. Please hear me. I don't mean this in any sorts of, uh, sort of insensitive way. But if the only skin that we have in the game right now is to fight for diversity, is through social media, then I don't think that's going to get it. I think we need people coming in to the church, not, not abandoning the church just because they have different views than you, but, but, but committing to a local body and saying, I'm going to be a part of reform at this church, and I'm going to come in graciously, humbly, and say, can we work on doing something to create more racial reconciliation? Can we do something to create more diversity? I want that as a pastor. I'm inviting that as a pastor to say, can people come in led by the gospel, empowered by the gospel with passion? I would never tell you, give up your passions. I would say, fight passionately for ra racial reconciliation. Fight passionately for what you're socially charged by, but I would say do so in a spirit of grace and humility, led by the gospel and empowered by it through the spirit. And you will see that because I believe it's led with grace and humility, accompanied with passion as well. A couple other things, and I'll wrap up, I promise. I don't plan on being this long-winded for the next few ones, but just as we intro this, I would love to tell you that I am proud of the lineage that I come from. That I'm proud of, of, and some of you guys get to say this, that I'm proud of the things that my father did, and I'm proud of the things that my father's father did and his father. But the reality is, is that I can't say that. In fact, I'm disheartened and discouraged by what has been done before me. But I know this, that the only reason there has been any change in my heart is because the cross of Christ came to bear and it stepped into our family. And I trust that the grace of God and the power of the cross can save and it can transform lives. And I think with my post-millennial brothers right now, that is not my view, but, but in a lot of ways with them, I think that they actually believe that the power of the gospel can change our society. And so I pray we preach it, I pray we are passionate about it, and I pray for those that disagree us, with us, if they are in wrong, and if, and if I'm in sin or if I'm wrong, please restore me. Please do so with a, uh, with a spirit of gentleness. Please, let's let us bear one another's burdens. But let's do this. Let's be people that are quick to encourage, not beat one another up. Let's encourage people. That's Hebrews 10, 24. We are called to encourage. I've been blessed by people encouraging me this week, just saying, how can we pray for you, Rick? We are praying for you. Let's be people that are quick to give grace, that are quick to encourage one another. But let's be people that are prayer warriors. And I would challenge you right now, wherever you're at, to pray with a group of people that you're with right now. I, I, I would ask you to 
even after you pray or during your prayer, prayer uh, as the text tells us, if you have bitterness and anger or hostility harbored for a brother or sister Christ, I would encourage you to go to them and to repent. And to remind them and remind one another that there is blood guilt on all of us. That to demand people to feel guilty and shameful is not healthy. To demand people to feel the righteousness and the covering and, and, and the bloodshed of Christ that's been poured out over us, that has covered us, that has cleansed us for all of our unrighteousness, we need to be quick to remind people that is the blood that covers us. That is the blood that has been shed. That is the only blood that can heal us. There is blood guilt on us in, 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 in our nation, in our state, and in our spiritual lineage. But what there is is greater bloodshed on us through Christ. Let us move that, let, let that move us towards reconciliation as we recognize, take ownership, and move towards people. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. And I pray that where we can disagree, and where even more people will disagree with me today, I pray that what we can agree on is there is no reconciliation without recognizing that it only comes by way of the cross and the gospel. That though there are those that mourn and, 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 and anger the murdering of George Floyd and of Ahmaud Arbery, there, there, there are those that are frustrated with the complacency that they've seen. And where our hearts have been complacent, God, We've been so slow to move or not act where we're guilty of sins of, of, of not just commission but omission. Then, Father, we ask that you would forgive us and remind us that it is the bloodshed of Christ that we stand under, not the condemnation of man. Amen.